Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Matthew Delmont. Dr. Delmont is a professor of history at Dartmouth University, an expert on African-American history and the history of civil rights. His most recent book is Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Let's hear what he has to say about the Port Chicago weapons disaster. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'd like to start off with uh, at the beginning of World War II. The U.S. Armed Forces, they're segregated. What is it like for black soldiers who enlist during this time? It's extraordinarily frustrating for black Americans who want to join the military, who either volunteer or drafted into the military. At the start of World War II, the entire military is racially segregated, and it remains segregated throughout the entirety of the war. The Army isn't allowing any Black Americans to serve in combat units. They're only allowed to serve in these logistical and supply roles where they're doing the kind of behind-the-scenes dirty work uh, to help help win the war. Within the Navy, they're only allowed to serve as mess attendants, where their job is to cook, clean, and serve white officers. And then at, at the start of the war, the Marine Corps isn't allowing any Black Americans to serve. And so there are stories that happen immediately after Pearl Harbor of Black Americans going to volunteer for service and being turned away at these recruiting stations because at the time, the Army doesn't have enough all-Black units to accommodate them. And so the, the tenor at the time is one of, of frustration and a real desire to, to serve the country. The first thing Black Americans have to do is really fight for the opportunity to fight in World War II. 
And I know that Pearl Harbor kind of maybe shifted things. In what way did it do so? And and what kind of recruitment strategies came about after Pearl Harbor? So Pearl Harbor obviously means that the United States officially enters the war. Um, I think one thing that's important for Black Americans is that they had been following news about the war in in Europe for for years before Pearl Harbor. So they were they were ready to fight fascism. They understood what a serious threat this posed. What Pearl Harbor does though is it. it launches the U.S. fully into the war militarily. Uh, it takes several months before the the Army and the Navy can catch up, but finally they start to accommodate uh, the thousands and thousands of Black Americans who are eager to help defend the country. And that means they establish more training bases. Uh, they establish more all-Black units to, um, to accommodate all the, the Black American volunteers and draftees. How are these new soldiers uh, treated? What, what kind of discrimination did they face? Based on the research I've done, the kind of racial discrimination these soldiers and sailors encountered when they entered the military was was deeply, deeply upsetting. Uh, the In many cases, these were Black men coming from northern cities, so places like Chicago, Detroit, New York. They would describe getting on trains and going to these army bases, which were primarily located in the South. Uh, when they got to the demarcation points of the South, Washington, D.C., or other cities, they had to transfer to the Jim Crow segregated sections of the cars. And so you can you can picture it. They're in their military uniforms and now being segregated on these trains. They pull into these small southern towns, and they describe having to pull down the shades on the train cars so that white townspeople wouldn't throw rocks at the train cars because they were so upset about the idea of black soldiers being stationed there. And then once they're on these bases, they describe daily harassment from white officers and enlisted men uh, being called racial epithets daily, being um, addressed by their first name rather than by rank or last name, as would be the custom. And then when they would go into these small southern towns, they were harassed by uh local white sheriffs and police, and in some cases, uh, killed while in training. The letters they wrote to the NAACP, to people like Thurgood Marshall, who was the head of the legal division for the NAACP at the time, they were saying things like, we are at war here in Mississippi and Alabama. They said they'd feel safer once they actually deployed to Europe or the Pacific than they did in the United States. And I think it's important because it gives us a, a whole different understanding of what the war was like for Black Americans, that these were young Black men and women who were trying to serve their country, but were being, uh, were being harassed in the United States. They felt like they were actually at war in the United States before they ever even got to the, the battlefronts abroad. Now, what kind of training were they given back home? And, and how did it compare to the training that was given to the white sailors, particularly in the Navy? So the story with the Navy, the, the big thing that was frustrating for Black Americans is that they were only allowed to serve as mess attendants, which was the, the lowest rank possible on a, a Navy ship. Their, their job was literally to, to serve the needs of white officers. They did the cooking, the cleaning. And so the, the kind of training they received was uh, was appropriate for that role. They didn't. They weren't trained on any of the other more advanced technical responsibilities uh, aboard the ship. And the reason that was a problem, the thing that civil rights activists said at the time, is that Everyone understood that this Navy training wasn't just important for the war. It, in many cases, provided people with skills that they could use in civilian life after the war. It, it also paid more to have these higher-ranking roles on the ships. And so black men who were mess tenants were earning less each month than comparable white officers who had the same education, came from the same backgrounds. And so that was what was really upsetting to them. And then, of course, with Pearl Harbor, there were black Americans who performed heroically. There was a young man named Doris Miller who was on the USS West Virginia. And even though he was a mess attendant, he wasn't trained to use the ship's weapons. Once the, the bombing happened, his lieutenant ordered him to go to one of the anti-aircraft guns, and Miller did. He grabbed the gun and started firing at the, the Japanese planes, potentially hitting and downing one of them. He also cared for the wounds of many of the, the men on the ship and helped s- several of his shipmates um, 
reach safety on, on the beach. When Black Americans learn about the, the heroism of Doris Miller, <clears throat> they're saying, if we can do this once the battle starts, why can't we be more than mess attendants? Like, uh, enemy torpedoes don't make a distinction between mess attendants and admirals. Like We are at at risk on these ships. Why can't we take on larger roles? And so that was in the pages of Black newspapers like the Chicago Defender and Pittsburgh Courier really energized uh, civil rights activism at home. Can you give us a little backstory on Port Chicago and what its purpose was during the war? So Port Chicago was a major uh, ammunition depot uh, that was just outside of San Francisco. And its role was to um, to basically move the, the vast, vast supplies of ammunition and other supplies uh, to the Navy ships that were going to be crossing the Pacific. And so train cars would pull into Port Chicago. They would be unloaded uh, and then loaded onto these, these ships. Um, crates and crates and crates, boxes and boxes and boxes of bombs and other ammunition would be loaded on these ships, packed very tightly, and then sent across the Pacific. It, it's hard to really do justice to the, the scale of the logistical operation that was happening during World War II. So Port Chicago is one of these really important nodes of moving uh, just thousands of tons of, of materials every, every month to make sure that the Allies had what they needed to be able to fight the wars in the, in the Pacific and in Europe. So what was happening within Port Chicago in terms of uh, the culture of the soldiers? And, uh, you know, we read about a, a, a senior Navy officer uh, by the name of Captain uh, Nelson Goss, who just totally disregarded Coast Guard safety regulations and uh, would make a game out of loading this ammunition. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So one of the things that's happening at Port Chicago, maybe two of the things that are happening is one, you have sailors who just months before were civilians they've been drafted into the the navy and been assigned to this role of essentially being um, cargo loaders at, at port chicago and so these are average men from all across the country in many cases they were, were black en enlisted sailors but they're not given any proper training on how to do this work if they had been in civilian life had been actual dock workers they would have gone through weeks and weeks of training on how to use the cranes and how to use all the this advanced machinery to be able to move this highly sensitive highly explosive material that wasn't the case at port chicago these men are, are thrust into this and they're really doing the best they can and then as you just alluded to the other thing that's going on is that there are extreme pressures to meet the very critical demands that the navy has to move all of these tons of, of material. And so what starts happening in terms of the, the culture of the port is that the, the white officers start competing against each other to see which units can move things faster. They, they essentially make a game of it where they're, they're betting, making small bets on which unit can move more in which shift. That might sound fun in, in theory, but when you're moving <laughs> bombs, highly explosive materials, it, it's obviously not, not a game. And it didn't, not it did, it, it was not fun. Um, and it didn't work well. Um, when you have men who are struggling to keep up and don't yet have the appropriate training being, uh, being pushed to the, to the very extreme. Can you walk us through, uh, the events that happened on July 17, 1944? So on the night of July 17, 1944, there's a massive explosion at Port Chicago. Uh, the people in the surrounding areas in San Francisco described it as though it felt like an, an earthquake. It, what happened was um, some of these explosive materials that they were moving exploded, and it prompted a chain reaction. Uh, two of the ships that were there uh, were blown completely out of the water, picked up and turned around. One of the ships was so destroyed that they only found small, small fragments of it. Beyond the physical destruction of the, the materials and the ships and the docks that were there, there was a huge loss of life. 
320 people died, 320 sailors were there died, including 202 black enlisted sailors. Of that, only 51 bodies were ever recovered. It was by far the worst home front disaster during the war. And immediately after the explosion uh, or explosions, how, how did the treatment of the black survivors differ from uh, that of the white surviving sailors? And, and, and how did the, the black sailors respond to that? So everyone was was traumatized by what they had experienced and what they'd witnessed. And if you kind of try to put yourself in that mindset, you, you can understand why. They had been pushing themselves right up into the brink, doing what they knew to be very dangerous work. Then they ex- experienced this massive explosion uh, and were fortunate to survive it, but had seen more than 100 of their fellow sailors and friends killed. Then just in the days afterwards, the big distinction for the, the white officers and, um, and sailors and the, the black sailors is based on their ranks, most of the white personnel were eligible for leaves, which was like a common Navy policy after having experienced something of this nature. They're eligible uh, for leaves to be able to go back and visit their families and take some time to recuperate. Based on their ranks, the black sailors weren't eligible for that. And so just days after having lived through this horrible explosion, they're being asked to go right back to work for these very same white officers who they knew were putting them in situations that were likely to uh, to result in the very same kind of uh, unsafe conditions they'd, they had just been in. Who was Joseph Smalls and uh, what, what was he advocating for? How did he really surface uh, within the group? So in that period after the explosion, the surviving black sailors, there are about 250 of them, they're moved to a, another uh, ammunition depot and, and essentially ordered to go do this work. Um, they refused, refused to do so. Um, they are immediately imprisoned on a barge where they're guarded by uh, Marines for three days because they, um, because they refuse to do this work loading ammunition. And the, the talk that's going on among the men is that they, they don't want to do this again because they recognize it's so dangerous and they're worried that they might, might be killed. Joseph Smalls was a 22 year old who was one of these, um, uh, sailors, black sailors, uh, who was part of the Chicago, Port Chicago disaster. He, he survived it. He becomes a leader among the group. Um, 22 might not seem very old, but compared to the 18 and 19 year olds who were there, they regarded him as a kind of an older brother figure. Um, he's a, a strong, stocky, uh, young man and he becomes a leader of the group and he tries to rally those surviving men to say, you know, if we stick together, there's nothing they can do to force us to do this. And so while they're on this, this barge, while they're in prison on the barge, he's the one who's really essentially forming a, a informal union, so to speak, trying to get them to, to stick together and not be forced back into this work. And of the 258 men who eventually demonstrated against um, the, the injustice that the Navy was putting them through, uh, 50 of them eventually refused to return to work. What repercussions did these men face? So those 50 who refused to return to work, Smalls and the others who organized this thought of it in a a labor strike sense. They thought, you know, we're going to refuse to work, but there's not much the Navy can can do to us. This is essentially like a wildcat strike in a, in a work, a workstation. They were wrong in terms of how the Navy would respond to it. The the Navy charged Smalls and, and the other 50 men who refused to load ammunition with mutiny. Um, because they saw it as them directly refusing an order. And so then those 50 men have to go through a, a court-martial for conspiring to make mutiny. Uh, that becomes the, the largest, it's the first uh, court-martial, um, mutiny court-martial in the Navy during the war, and it's the largest um, group court-martial in Navy history. How, uh, I'm assuming, uh, 
eventually they had to go through proceedings and and uh, how fair were were these proceedings? They were about as fair as you expect them at the time in a segregated military. Uh, and so it was just months after the explosion in September, um, the trial begins with a seven-member court of senior naval officers that's appointed by an admiral. Um, they're all white lawyers, both the lawyer defending the men and all the lawyers and the judge and jury hearing, hearing the case. And so to kind of picture the setup within the courtroom – at the center of the room are all the senior naval officers, all white, who are the ones debating what's going to happen to these men. Around the periphery of the courtroom are these black sailors, these young black sailors who are listening anxiously as it's going on, trying to see what's going to happen with their lives. It's important to know that if part of the um, the punishment potentially for these court martials was was death, that these men could have been could have been put to that they could have been executed as one of the findings from the court-martial cases. So this is what these young men are listening to while these white officers are, are debating it. After weeks of the, the trial, uh, eventually the jury adjourns to make their ruling. They deliberate for just barely over the lunch hour um, and end up finding all 50 of the sailors guilty of mutiny. Uh, the men are sentenced to between 5 and 15 years in prison. Thurgood Marshall, who is the, the lead uh, lawyer for the NAACP, he became involved in the in the case because the families of these um, of these sailors reach out to him. Marshall is involved with all these court martial cases during the war. Marshall noted afterwards that the officers barely deliberated for a minute and a half for each defendant, and so it wasn't the case that there was serious consideration given to what these men were thinking and fearing and uh, being asked to to go back and load this ammunition. What were they eventually charged with? And um, how did these charges kind of follow these men throughout the years? So the men were all charged with and convicted of uh, mutiny. So they're all guilty of mutiny. And, and initially, they're sentenced between five and 15 years. Marshall makes an appeal afterwards, but that appeal is unsuccessful. Uh, and the, the sailors spent the rest of the war at uh, Terminal Island Military Prison in San Pedro, which is south of Los Angeles. Thankfully, in the years immediately following the war, there's pressure on the Navy, in part linked to the desegregation of the military, uh, to reduce the sentences and to release the men from prison. So they were released from prison in 1946. They weren't uh, required to serve their full full sentences. But it took decades and decades, and in many cases, it's still ongoing, trying to clear the names of these these men. The fact that they were guilty of mutiny meant that they weren't eligible for any of the military benefits that um, that veterans were eligible for after World War II. And so that that legacy of being found guilty of mutiny stuck with them for, for decades and decades, well into the, the 90s and even the 2000s. How do you think that the Port Chicago weapons disaster shined a light on uh, discrimination in the in the U.S. military, racial discrimination? Um, and, and do you think it, it, it helped initiate change within the institution? On the second point, I, I do think it helped to initiate change. I think the one of the things that happens after the war is that through a series of, of events and and actions and intentional protests by black civil rights activists, the military does finally desegregate. President Truman signs an executive order to desegregate the military in 1948. It takes a few years before that becomes a reality on the ground, but it, it does happen by the end of the Korean War in 1953. The Navy actually moves even before President Truman to start to desegregate their ships. And there's a, a, a slow realization, painfully slow realization, that Segregation makes no sense from a strategic or tactical perspective, that if 
the Navy, if the Army, if the Marine Corps want to be the most effective fighting forces they can, they need to draw on the capacities of, of all Americans. And that segregation, racial discrimination is a barrier that prevents them from being the most effective fighting force that they can. More broadly, though, I think the Port Chicago disaster is a, a microcosm of what the war was like for Black Americans. One of the things I argue in my book is that you can't talk about the history of World War II without talking about the experiences of Black Americans. And Port Chicago, I think, is a, a good case because these Black sailors were doing really important work to help the broader supply effort that helped the Allies win the war. Moving that ammunition was was really crucial to that. There were Black troops doing similar work in Alaska to build ro- build roads, in New Guinea to build runways, to move uh, supplies all across Europe with, as part of a group of truck drivers called the Red Ball Express after the D-Day invasion. But invariably, these soldiers, even though soldiers and sailors, even though they're doing really important work, they continue to experience racism on a daily basis. Port Chicago is the case where it got it was the most deadly case, but the that kind of um, undercurrent of of racism and discrimination was was commonplace for for black troops throughout the war. So we always ask our guest experts this question: At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Port Chicago weapons disaster. Who or what would that be? I'll, I'll answer with a concept, um, and it might seem might be the obvious one to say here. It was racism. Um, I think one of the things that was most frustrating about doing this research on World War II is that we would like to think, if we believe in the kind of mythical history of World War II in the United States, that it was a time of national unity. It was a time when the country came together to fight this common enemy and to help win this this massive struggle. Part of that story is true. The United States pulled off some amazing feats and and made some amazing sacrifices to help win the war. But the thing I kept finding over and over again was that racism and racial prejudice was something that average white Americans just were not willing to give up to help win the war. Roy Wilkins, who's one of the NAACP leaders at the time, said white Americans would rather lose this war than give up the luxury of racial prejudice. And and it's hard to find the lie in that. And I think with Port Chicago, I think it's relevant because it was racism on behalf of the white officers and the Navy personnel who who set up the facility in the way that they did that led them to disregard the health and safety of those black sailors who were working there. I think if they had taken seriously the lives of these men before the explosion, they would have given them proper training. They would have not been having units compete against each other. They would have slowed down uh, because they would have recognized it was for the long-term benefit, both of the men, but also of the, the war effort to not, um, not put, these men in in harm's way in that in that sort of way, and so the reason I would point to racism, I think we we don't have comparable examples of the Navy treating the lives of white sailors so cheaply. Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and helping us understand this. Um, I hope not to be forgotten any longer. Uh, important uh, World War II disaster. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed the discussion. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. So much uh, to unpack here after uh, speaking with Matt. I mean, I know you guys were taking notes. Clayton, you weren't even on the initial episode. I so know. This, this is a lot of information that we just uh, gathered. I know. <laughs> For me especially, very frustrating information. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the initial episode, we didn't get too much into the nitty gritty of what these individual soldiers had to experience and go through during their training and during their transportation and you know the the story about them having to pull the shades in the ca- train car down so that people wouldn't throw mm-hmm. rocks yeah um, being addressed by their first name um the emotional like mind trip and abuse of that to to be like knowing that you're making the ultimate sacrifice right. to serve your country and the people you're serving literally like are showing like physical and verbal disdain to you and, and to like somehow keep go- like the resilience you have to like keep deciding to defend that is really admirable because that would be hard for me to do. Yes. I mean, I, I can't imagine when he was talking about how they would say that the, the war was actually back home Yes, that that they were at war in Mississippi and Alabama. Yeah, And like almost going to Europe was easier. Yeah, they felt safer there. I mean, in World War II, which is gross. What? Yeah, it's it's really something else that really stuck out with me that just kind of, I don't know, speaks to how daft 
we can be was um you were asking him you know what changes this whole thing brought about and he said you know like they kind of ultimately realized that segregation is not strategically that's yes i, good I think i know where you're war. going about and i'm this. like that's, that's what, what changed it, was. it they're like it was it's just not a good strategy not that it's disgusting and terrible yeah. <laughs> just makes us we need to change it, it so that we can win us. more wars yeah yeah. Incredible. Like, oh my like, God. Wow. Well, what's crazy is that I think I think in our research what we talked about, and Alex mentioned this, was that that was part of the reason why they didn't want to desegregate. They gave they were like, well, it would make things less efficient. Well, they no, they didn't want to upset the white soldiers who were coming from right. the south. Right. Who are accustomed to yes. a certain a certain dynamic. way of life. Yeah. Oh, Disgusting. Gosh. So, I mean, I think it's so important to all to to remember and always keep talking about how World War II was happening during Jim Crow, or the, the Jim Crow laws. Yeah, mm-hmm. just, it's just like mm-hmm. Matt just said. Keep thinking about that. I just think, yeah, keep thinking about what Matt that. said was so true. Is like, you know, people like forget that it was like, yeah, we we achieved a lot in World War II. It was great. There was a lot of unity. Um, but also it was like, it it was total, we were a totally segregated nation and it was, Mm -hmm. it was the crossover. It's like you learn about these things all separate in history and you realize that they're all going on at the same time and you're like, oh, right. It's just so hypocritical. Like, I know it's, uh, I, you, you just can't forget that. Think, don't, don't just write it down all day long. Write it down somewhere. (laughs) Um, I also just feel like good for these men who I think rightly so, who were like, we refuse to work. Like this is a labor issue. This is like a work safety issue. Like we just, we just witnessed this really uh, traumatizing event. A bunch of the white officers had the ability to take a leave and visit their family and like take some time off to like for their own mental health. But just because of our rank, something as silly as that, we can't do the exact same thing we experienced the exact same trauma and to be like i'm not gonna i don't feel safe yeah i think that's even more it's like you just want us to go keep doing exactly what we were doing Mm -hmm. before this terrible disaster happened and you don't want to change anything you don't want to put any safety measures in place you just want to at least yeah and like not have the maturity to at least acknowledge like uh matt was saying like these were civilians like weeks earlier and suddenly they're moving highly explosive materials that i mean like i i would be terrified (laughs) if i were called to a wartime effort and i knew i was working with like any kind of weaponry i just think and maybe this is like modern day us and this is how like we've become accustomed to certain like safety protocols but i would just be like are we doing like is is there anything else that we could be doing (laughs) so nervous yeah like if someone's like making a game out of it i'd be like i don't know if i want to play that game imagine they're just like just do it fast clayton no (laughs) i i don't i i think that they put something in my hand like that i i would just like stand still i wouldn't be able to move (laughs) they would have to carry you i know what are you gonna do like court-martial me for not working fast enough and they probably would that's That's what they did yeah that's what they i mean eventually did so Mm. what do we think here i mean we kind of came to a similar conclusion during our episode Mm -hmm. uh what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail clayton you threw racism and all its children in the alarmist jail and you gave the big slap to the u.s military Mm -hmm. so 
And I think he, um, I, I really like the way that Matt summed it up, you know, racism, but like more like pointedly that white Americans were just not willing to give up their racial prejudice to win the war. Yeah. Like that was somehow more important than to war, which seems amazing. Imagine? It's like really an amazing statement. Yeah. Just imagine that kind of um, hatred. Yeah, man. I think, I think to a degree we were pretty right. Right on, because yeah. it was mm-hmm. a couple different forms of racism when you think about it, right? Like mm-hmm. Clayton just said, and, and Matt articulated so well, yeah, it was the racism that was sort of ingrained because of our history, because of who we are. And there was also the institutional racism of the of the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I think we kind of nailed it. <laughs> this I doesn't ever did. happen. This never happens. This I wonder to rare. that question of, you know, Americans not willing to give up their... Pre- like, if the war had been, like, on the home turf and more, like... Yeah. ...pressing, how... That's interesting If question. that still would have... If that... Yeah. ...thesis would have stood. It's like that quote. You know, like, how like, much were we, like, the luxury of, like, oh, it's a war going on in Europe and we're, like, finally swooping in to help right. stop this from getting yeah. too out of control. That they had the luxury of, like, well, we're, but we're not going to, like, make ourselves that uncomfortable here at home. Like, we're going to keep our weird racist dynamics in place okay so uh, i i feel good about uh the conclusion we made i don't think we're we're changing our verdict okay uh, no. i'm so glad we had uh matt on the show and he um was able to really just get into the details of this um particular tragedy totally um, you know what we should do? We should offer an incentive. The first Alarmy member to take a picture of the memorial of the Portugal. Oh, yeah. That'd be cool. So, so we got to go visit this memorial. I do. I want to. It's, it's in, in San Francisco? Yeah. It's yeah. just outside of uh, San Francisco. Of it, yeah. yeah. We're going we're gonna to head north. <laughs> All right. Start packing the car, Clay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, stay tuned because next week we are going to be discussing the deaths of Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.